In the first half, we reviewed again the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. The message again, as we uh, have been looking at this, is that you should use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. That we said requires three responsibilities. The first one that we consider is that you should understand that not everything you have the right to do helps others spiritually, but that you are still required to seek the good of others. The second that we reviewed is that you should understand that your use of freedom is not absolute. So, you need to adjust it. its application depending on what you are facing with. So, we say that that second responsibility means that you need to know when to use and when not to use your freedom. Now, we say that you use your freedom when you enjoy God's provisions in a way that is not sinful and does not impact your testimony. Now, that's a positive way. But negatively, we say that you should use your freedom when your faith is challenged. You shouldn't use your freedom in Christ. Now, the apostle set up the condition for this uh, as involving an invitation to a meal by an unbeliever in Corinth. So the apostle states what should happen in verse 27, which is say, it, whatever is put before you without raising question of conscience. So the believer should eat the meat without questioning a source. Now the conscience, of course, is the conscience of the host. I went through to explain to it uh, why it is the conscience of the host. Now the condition for not eating is given in verse 28 where it says, But if anyone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, the believer will then not eat. As in the next sentence where it says, Then do not eat it. And we try to ensure that, yes, the Greek says more than that. It has in sense that you are in the middle of eating and someone tells you and you immediately stop. That's the sense. So, the reason, of course, for this is that uh, you are concerned about the conscience of the unbeliever who may be tormented. That's why the unbeliever would have told you to begin with. That this food is, is sacrificed or to an idol because his conscience is bothering him. Now, by you uh, refusing to eat it, you ease his conscience in a way that I explained a little more uh, in the first half. Nonetheless, we indicated that uh, it is more important that as a believer that you recognize that you should have impact on unbelievers. By that, we emphasize that you need to be in a position where you constantly think about yourself as different from an unbeliever. Now, you all may you know, look alike, eat the same food, walk in the same place, or even go to the same church. If a person is not a believer, 
you should be aware that you have that responsibility to do everything to show that person that you're different. It's not that you go around and say, I am different. No, you, your conduct should reflect it. The way you talk, what you do, everything should reflect. Now we're not the same. We may live in the same country, live in the same city, even the same house. If one is a believer and the other one is an unbeliever, you're not the same. So you must differentiate yourself from an unbeliever. So with that, we continue to indicate that uh, the Holy Spirit knows us very well because some of us are going to argue as to why somebody else will determine my freedom. Nonetheless, we continue to deal with the fact that uh, this idea of human freedom can become idolatry. And when I made that statement, that I said, yeah, some of you will not really recognize this kind of thing because you think, oh, human freedom is so important. I say, yeah, if you understand what that really means. But that it can become a concept where we put human freedom above God's word. And when that happens, that's idolatry. And I said, I'm going to demonstrate that with two examples. So the first example that I stated is that, yes, the Bible tells parents to remove foolishness in their children through discipline. And that is when I cited Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, which is where we stopped, and that's where we begin the second session. The sentence says, Folly, that's foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Now you may be wondering, how does that do anything with idolatry? And that's my point, is I make it, I try to establish it so you can see why I made that statement. Now the sentence, folly, is bound up in the heart of a child, means that there is an innate foolishness. Inborn foolishness or thoughtlessness that is in every child. Ah, start on yours. You must have a perfect child. It's in every child born on this planet. The only child that that has never been true of, born, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is humanity. That's it. Every other human being born with foolishness. Now, of course, I'm sure that most of you who have raised children or are raising little ones have found yourself embarrassed by what your child says before others because children say whatever comes to mind without thinking, whatever. I mean, I know some others do the same thing because that proves sometimes their foolishness was not driven at anyway. Quite often though, parents or others say that such a uh, and such a thing is cute instead of criticizing or recognizing that it is not that commendable and to do something to correct a child. Now, so this passage of Proverbs indicates that discipline that involves corporal punishment should be used to teach a child not to be thoughtless. 
some pain behind you know where takes a chance to remember. Now, however, some parents accept what social science or the social scientists say about the use of corporal punishment. They accept that such will be teaching children violence and wounding their self-esteem. Furthermore, they accept that such discipline discourages self-expression of a child. Now some parents may say that they do not want to limit the freedom of their child to do whatever the child wants. When a person takes that view, that is idolatry because the person has placed the worth of human beings or the instruction of a human being above that of God, which the scripture has, uh, that I read stipulates. So when that happens, that, my friend, is idolatry. So when a person, a parent, goes against it because of social scientists or whatever it is, that is idolatry because you're trying to ensure that your child has the freedom to do whatever he or she wants. As soon as you think that way, you are in idolatry. You see, I'm going to make more points so you understand what I'm saying that cannot shock you. Oh, really? Yeah, that's an idolatry. Because you put human freedom over God. Take another example that involves idolatry. It's here involves adults in their relationship with to their governmental authority. The government tells us what to do. For most of us, our first instinct is to rebel against what they tell us that we do not like. If they we like it, no problem. So we don't like it. Then we claim that we are that they are infringing on our freedom. Now this is true of both believers and unbelievers in this country and in many other countries that are free as we use the term humanly. So what's wrong with that, you may ask. What is wrong with that? First, we should remember that laws are necessary because of our sinful nature. It's because of our sinful nature that laws are necessary. If we are perfect, then law will be unnecessary, as implied in what the Holy Spirit gives through Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. First Timothy chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 reads, We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and, and perjurers, 
and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, so this passage implies that if you are not a lawbreaker, then whatever law that is passed by the government that is not in conflict with God's word should not be perceived as curtailing your human freedom. As long as it's not contrary to the scripture. So, based on that, when that happens, you see that people are actually, as I'm going to argue, in idolatry. Because they are putting their human freedom over uh, God's word. Now, second though, the scripture commands us then to obey those in authority over us. As the Holy Spirit states through Apostle Peter in First Peter, uh, First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. First Peter First Peter chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. It is Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now think about this. When the Holy Spirit gave the Apostle Peter this message, the Roman government was oppressing Christians all over the world. Yet he said, submit to them. Now I say, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So if a believer does not submit to the authority of rulers when what they have commanded cannot be shown to be in conflict with the word of God, when that happens, that is idolatry. If the reason for disobedience is that it infringes on human freedom. Here is the thing. Now, I mean, hence you see really that quite often the concept of human freedom then is a form of idolatry that many believers get involved with without recognizing it. Now, I am of course I'm not concerned with unbelievers that, you know, because they are spiritually dead and so, they are in perpetual idolatry. Anyway, you see really from what I've just explained, I've given you two examples of idolatry. And you haven't thought, I mean, probably you would not have thought about that as being idolatry. But this is why studying the word of, Bible, uh, the word of God makes the difference in our life. Now, it's really, the thing is, it is our knowledge that makes us to react differently to a situation or event. I say, the knowledge you have, that determines how you function, really. Now, in saying this, though, I'm reminded of the different response of the Israelites who returned from exile when the foundation of the second temple 
was set. We've got two reactions. Those who never seen the first temple were jubilant because the foundation has been laid for the second one. But those who saw the first one were in mourning. They were so unhappy. They were crying because the first temple dwarfs the second. So he, he, my point though is same thing. But it's the knowledge base. Those who didn't know the magnificence of Solomon's temple, they saw this, they were so happy. What that tells me is this, that many times, there are many of us walking around thinking that we're not in idolatry. Because no one has actually taken time to expound on, on what idolatry means, so we know. And so we think we're fine. But truly, our response depends on our knowledge. So, those men, those who were happy for the temple being laid at the foundation, and others who were unhappy, the same thing. They are looking at the same event. But the knowledge is what makes a difference. Now, just in case you, um, let me just take time and read what I've just said to you. From Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Ezra Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, it reads, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they signed to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Look at verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. You see the difference? No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made much noise and the sound was heard far away. In other words, my point by bringing this issue is this. Why are they so happy? They didn't have any knowledge of what it used to be. Now, why are these other people crying? Because they had knowledge of what it used to be. He said, what you're doing now doesn't even amount to. It doesn't equal to what we used to have. You see what my point is? It's a knowledge base. So if you don't have a thorough knowledge base, you're going to be patting yourself at the back and say, I am a great Christian. I'm this and that. 
until someone begins to actually lay down the word explaining to you the detail. And you see how small we are. But other than that, we just walk around and think we're fine. That's why a whole lot of our local churches, they all think they are fine. They are fantastic believers. Because no one tells them really about what's in the scripture. You know, they wave hand at it and 20, 30 minutes and that's it. But if you, like I've just explained idolatry in the, in the two examples I've given to you, how many would have known that? So that's the point of going to this passage to show you that yes, you can rejoice on the same event and somebody will cry because their knowledge makes them know that something is not right while you think it's right. That's the point. Anyway. So in any case, as we stated previously, the Holy Spirit knows us well as those who are more concerned about ourselves and our comfort than that of uh, other people. Now this is true of us believers when we are not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Therefore the Holy Spirit directed Apostle Paul to present this fact in form of two rhetorical questions uh, given in verses 29 and 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we're studying. Now these two rhetorical questions have been considered difficult to interpret and so several approaches have been adopted by commentators to try to explain them. For example, some contend the apostle was defending his own practice of eating such meat. Now, another approach is that the apostle addressed the weak believer, urging a more wide-ranging view of the liberty believer serving Christ for the sake of the strong. Now, the various approaches, notwithstanding, it seems that the two rhetorical questions are the objections a person will raise because of the instruction of the Holy Spirit that he gave through the apostle. Now, the, does the apostle generalize the objection in the first person singular, I, in both rhetorical questions? Now, such an approach is what experts tell us is a classical approach when an author wants to illustrate something universal. He can put himself as an example. Of course, this approach makes it easier though to see that what the apostle wrote, beginning in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10, is in a sense a response to the objection a person could raise or could regarding the instruction of the apostle about eating and not eating. So we are saying that the two rhetorical questions are concerned with the kind of objections we could give regarding the instruction that we should not use our freedom in Christ when there is a challenge to our faith because of what we do that is really not sinful but causes problem for another person, specifically the unbelievers. Now in the context of the passage that we're studying, the issue is that of eating meat that a believer has been informed was sacrificed to an idol. 
The believer is instructed to abstain not because there is anything wrong in eating meat regardless of its source, but because such a believer should be concerned about the conscience of the one who informs the believer regarding the meat that has been sacrificed to an idol bought in a meat market served in the home of an unbeliever who hosted a believer. Now the believer who knows that all food is from God would wonder the reason an unbeliever determines the person's use of freedom in Christ. In other words, why should your freedom be concerned to me? Why is he causing my, my problem? Therefore, the apostle then gives the first rhetorical question that captures the thought of such a believer in the last part of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 29. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 29 reads, For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Now this, the rhetorical question, according to the United Bible Society handbook, said that it could be cast as a statement, and I quote, this is where they say you can translate it. It said, For my liberty should not be determined by another person's conscience. That's how they say you can translate it. Again, for my liberty should not be determined by another person's conscience. So anyway, the use of the word freedom in the rhetorical question is actually the very first time the apostle used a Greek word that strictly means freedom in this first epistle of the uh, to, to the Corinthians. Well, we are sad that it is in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 29 that the apostle used strictly the Greek word freedom in his teaching about freedom of the believer in Christ in this epistle of 1 Corinthians. Now a person may say that the word freedom is used in an IV of 1 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Now we have to back these things up and try to, so you can see, we're just not make them, making them up as we go. Here it is. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the week. So if you only have English version, you say, oh, he's wrong. Look at, look at the apostle used the word freedom before this 10th chapter. Now the word freedom here in the passage of 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9 is translated from a Greek word exousia, exousia that many write as it is used to describe the liberty of a porter in Romans chapter 9 Verse 21. Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Now hold on to Romans. Romans chapter 9, verse 21 reads Does not the porter have the right 
to make out of the same lump of clay some poetry for noble purposes and some for common use. Now, that word right is the same Greek word translated in 1 Corinthians 8-9 as, as uh, uh, freedom. Now, the Greek word exousia may also mean authority, as in the explanation of a reason we should obey those who rule us in Romans chapter 13, verse 2. Romans Chapter 13, verse 2. It reads, Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will, be, uh, will bring judgment on themselves. So here, exousia is translated uh, authority. So the Greek word then translates freedom. In 1 Corinthians 8-9 allows other meanings. However, the word freedom in 1 Corinthians 10-29 is translated from a Greek word eleturia. That means freedom, liberty. Freedom, liberty. The word is used uh, of the freedom in Christ which stands in contrast to the constraint of the Mosaic law that is looked upon as slavery that a believer should resist, as we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Hold on to Galatians, that's chapter 5, because I'll pick another verse there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 reads, it is for freedom. This is eleturia, a Greek word eleturia. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Of course, the Holy Spirit warns regarding abusing the freedom we have in Christ through sin. As we read, look at the same Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13. Verse 13 reads, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. So it is not only through Apostle Paul, that the Holy Spirit warns against abuse of freedom in Christ, but also through Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. It is, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And I've said this many times, most time in this, many, many times, people in, uh, in this country, that's what they use, talk about freedom to cover up evil. Many, 
I'm not sure all, all people, but most many people. So when they are doing the wrong thing, that they, they are, you know, their right is being infringed upon. He said, live as servants of God. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10, 29, the word may be translated with freedom or liberty. In the sense of personal freedom to act as one chooses. Thus, the apostle was strictly concerned with freedom in Christ that is at the heart of the first rhetorical question of the verse we are considering. So our point is that the Greek word the apostle used in 1 Corinthians 10.29 is intended to convey that the apostle is concerned with freedom in Christ. Now we say this because it is the Greek word translated freedom in 1 Corinthians 10, 29 that the apostle used in referencing the freedom believers have in Christ as in the passage we started previously that is Galatians 5 verse 1 so also is it used in Galatians chapter 2 verse 4. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4. It is, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Here freedom, it continues to be the same word, a little here. Now furthermore, when the apostle wanted to convey that true freedom is associated with the control of the Holy Spirit, something most people don't even understand. You cannot have true freedom unless you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because true freedom requires absence of sin. Which we, you know, that's why I say, you know, we don't have true human freedom no matter what we uh, say. But this is the way the Apostle, uh, the Holy Spirit gives that concept in Second Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 17. Second Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 17. Now you look at what it says. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Look at the next clause. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, for true freedom to exist, one must be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, you won't do anything sinful. Which is the reason, we, you know, because of sinful nature, we have to be restricted in what we call our human freedom. Anyway, again, the point is that the Apostle is concerned with the freedom we have in Christ in the rhetorical question of the passage we're studying, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 29. Again, it says, For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? As we indicated, the rhetorical question is an objection that indicates that a believer's freedom should not be determined by another person's conscience. Thus, for the Holy Spirit to tell a person through the apostle not to use his or her freedom in Christ to eat meat may then imply 
that the apostle is contradicting himself in what he wrote about standing firm in the freedom that we have in Christ. Now we say this because since a believer knows that idol means nothing, then it will seem that such a person will ignore the conscience of an, an unbeliever who makes an issue of meat offered to an idol and go ahead to eat it, probably to convey that an idol is nothing. However, that is not the case. Instead, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle says that the believer should care about the conscience of the one that informed the gates of the source of meat served during the meal. Now the implied reason for such uh, instruction is given beginning in verse 31 that we will consider at the appropriate time. So anyway, the instruction of the apostle that will cause the believer to wonder the reason he or she should allow the conscience of the host to determine the use of the individual's freedom in Christ is again stated in the rhetorical question of 1 Corinthians 10.29 that we're looking at. He said, For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Now the word judge here is translated from a Greek verb that uh, may mean to pass judgment upon, to express an opinion about, or to judge as is used in the law's instruction concerning looking down on others in a condemning manner. When you look down on others in a condemning manner, then you'll be judging, and that's when you will actually be violating the instruction in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Luke Luke chapter 6 verse 37 it is do not judge and you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven now the Greek woman mean George is guilty. George is guilty. Not us to condemn, as the word is used to describe the states of those who believe and those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3, verse 18. John Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 18. John chapter 3 verse 18 reads Whoever believes in him is not condemned That's a Greek word But whoever does not believe stands condemned already Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son Now the word also may mean to punish To punish 
as in Stephen's sermon, as he referred to God's promise to Abraham of punishing those who would enslave his descendants, as we read in Acts chapter 7, verse 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 7. And hold on to Acts, and this passage is also in Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 7. It is, But I will punish, that's a Greek word, krino, krino, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Now the Greek word may mean to make a judgment based on taking various factors into account, hence means to consider, to consider. As Lydia used the word to persuade Apostle Paul and his team to stay in her house if the Apostle considered her a believer in Christ, as we read in Acts chapter 16 verse 15. Acts chapter 16, verse 15. Acts chapter 16, verse 15 reads, When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to, to her home. If you consider me, now that if you consider me, cross over the if you judge me, but here it really bears with the meaning consider. So if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now the word may also mean to prefer, to prefer, as it is used to describe the preference of believers regarding the date of worship, although it is translated considers in the NIV of Romans chapter 14 verse 5. Now, here this is something that uh, for most part we Christians worship on Sunday because that's the day of resurrection. But it's not, a, it's not something fixed on a stone. But there are some uh, believers, especially in some of this Muslim controlled world, they, they worship on Fridays. That's what they do because that's the only way they can get some kind of Freedom, if you want to use that word. Uh, since the Muslims, that's when they do that. And so Christians go on the ground and that's the only day they can do that. So they worship on Friday. Should we say they're wrong? No. Can't say that. Why? Because of this passage in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. Look at what it says. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. For that reason, we can say, you're wrong. If you decide to worship on Friday, Saturday, Monday, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, but the, the thing is, that word considers is probably best translated prefer. That's the way the 
legs we have English Bible translated it, they use the word uh, one man prefers instead of one man considers. Now the Greek word may mean to convince, as in the Apostle Paul's certainty, about the death of Christ for all human beings. In Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14. Second Corinthians chapter five verse fourteen. It reads for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. See, love is compelling. That's what Paul is really saying. Christ's love compels us. In other words, the love we have for Christ and the love he has for us both should be compelling to do something. Now, in our passage to 1 Corinthians 10.29, the sense of the Greek word is to evaluate. To evaluate. That is, to be subject to the critical scrutiny of another. Or to be unfavorably judged. Now the meaning then of the Greek word used implied that a rhetorical question of First Corinthians ten twenty-nine when it again says, For why should my freedom be judged by another man another's conscience? Now, as we have indicated already, it's really tantamount to a protest that a believer puts up when it is required. Of the individual not to use or to exercise his or her freedom in Christ because of another. Now the first protest though uh, is there is no reason to allow the scrutiny of another individual to limit one's use of freedom in Christ. Now just because somebody criticizes you does it mean you should not use the freedom in Christ? That's the first argument that the apostle is putting out in this rhetorical question. Because when somebody says, why should my freedom be joy by another, another another's conscience, you, you're just saying in a way, why should my freedom be scrutinized by another? Why? That's his first argument, though, or first protest that a person will put up. The second protest is based on the fact that a believer has responded the right way to food set before the individual by offering thanks to God and so no one has the right to scrutinize the believer and that is what is given the rhetorical question of First Corinthians 10 verse 30. Now the first one is why do you, I mean, I have freedom in Christ. Why, do, why should you scrutinize me? I'm not doing anything wrong. So, why are you going to uh, scrutinize me? That's what a person will say because you're told, be careful of somebody's conscience and don't do whatever. It's not sinful, but don't do it. So, so why would I be concerned about you? And but the second protest is, well, I've done the right thing about food, so why shouldn't I eat it? So that's the question it says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 30. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, 
Now the conditional clause here is given in an emphatic manner in the Greek. This is because in the Greek the apostle used an independent personal pronoun I or ego in the first person. See the Greek form tells us if the person speaking is in the first, second or third person. So to introduce an independent pronoun is a way to emphasize what is asserted. In other words, the words, the, the language that goes through declension, what we call declension, just when you look at the form, you can tell what it say, I am, or I, or we are, or you are, just by the form, just one word. But the, the endings let us know in the Greek. So, in this passage, the ending tells us I. But the apostles still said, I, to the Greek word ego. In other words, he is being emphatic in what he is trying to convey. Now this aside, the word thankfulness then is translated from a Greek word that is often rendered grace, carries, carries. In our English versions, but the word has various ranges of meanings. The word, when used in relationship with a person, may refer to that which is attractive or appealing in someone that draws favorable response from others. Hence, the Greek word may mean charming, or it may mean pleasant, or it may mean attractive. As the word is used by Apostle Paul in instruction us, giving us instruction regarding the believer's speech, or the communication that we put out. It should be in such, in such a manner that it will reflect something about us and our relationship with our Savior. That's the instruction given in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now the instruction, let your conversation be always full of grace, means that the believer's conversation should always be pleasant. Be pleasant. Now the word may mean that that uh, beneficent disposition towards someone that is in favor, help or care, or even goodwill that you show to somebody or that you that is received by another, as that is the way the the word is used in the experience of the early church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter two, verse forty-seven. Acts chapter 2 verse 47. It is praising God and enjoying the favor. That's a Greek word carries. Enjoying the favor for all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now the word may mean gift, as that which Gentile believers sent to believer, uh, to be- their fellow believers in Jerusalem, as we read in First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse three. First Corinthians, I mean, uh, chapter 16, verse 3. It reads, Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men to approve, I mean, you approve, and send them with your gift. That's a Greek word here. It's just a gift to, say, gifts uh, to Jerusalem. Now, the word also may mean generosity, or thankfulness, or gratitude. That's the way the apostle used that. I'm not going to read it, but you can jot it down in Colossians 3 verse 16. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 30, the sense of the Greek word is thanks. Thanks. That is an acknowledgement of appreciation uh, to God. So the appropriate response to food is to offer thanksgiving to God for it. So when this happens... Then the believer is free to eat whatever the food is, as the Holy Spirit has conveyed through Apostle Paul in his epistle to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. First Timothy. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. It reads, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God has created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So that's part of the argument. I'm going to be eating this. I've given God's time. So why would I be concerned about an unbeliever's conscience? So if a believer is not to reject any food, then once the food has been properly acknowledged by the believer through thanksgiving to God, then there's no reason not to eat that food. So it's for this reason that the rhetorical question is then given in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 30. Again, when it says, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? In other words, why, why shouldn't I eat this food? Even though I've been told it's from, it's from the uh, temple of idols, so why shouldn't I? I've already thanked God, it doesn't matter. Now, so the rhetorical question of though could also be, uh, according to the uh, handbook of the UBS, be translated something like this. There is no reason why anyone should criticize me. That's how the United Bible Society say you can translate that rhetorical question into a statement. There's no reason why anyone should criticize me. I've prayed over my food. Why should you criticize me? That's the, that'll be the, you know, the response that a person will say. Now the word denounce here is really translated from a Greek word blasphemy or from which we get the word blasphemy in a way but that, the Greek word means to speak in disrespectful way, in such a way as to harm or injure one's reputation, uh, whether human or divine. 
So thus, on one hand, when it is used with respect to humans, the appropriate meaning of the Greek word is to malign and to slander. Malign or to slander. As it is used in the conduct expected of believers in Titus chapter 3 verse 2. Titus chapter 3 verse 2. Now it says, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. To, to slander is, that's our Greek word here, here. On the other hand, when the word is used with respect to God, we normally use the meaning to blaspheme. And we're going to read it, but that's the way it's used in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, to blaspheme. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 30, the sense of the word is to be slandered. To be slandered. That is to be, to be or become malign or uh, denigrated with speech. Thus the rhetorical question implies that the one who asks the question assumes that some believers were probably talking behind the person's back as they state that the believer uh, who partakes in the food is wrong. Now the slander of such a person would of course be contrary to what the Holy Spirit said through the apostle regarding not judging anyone for what they eat. According to Romans chapter 14 verse 6. Romans chapter 14 verse 6. It says, Romans 14 verse 6 reads, He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Does then the complaint of this believer who is instructed to uh, abstain from eating food uh, that the host informs the individual of the meat coming from uh, the temple is really a legitimate question or complaint since such a believer knows that an idol is nothing and that such a person could eat anything the believer so chooses so long as the person offers thanks to God for the food that the person was about to receive. Now although such a believer has freedom in Christ to do so the Holy Spirit says through the apostle, or what he says indicates that there's another factor that governs a believer's life. And it is, see, here's the thing that, yes, you have the right to do what you want to do. But there's another factor that you have to consider. That's what the apostle is saying. The person may say, well, I have, you know, I'm eating this right. I've prayed over it. So why, why shouldn't I eat it? He said, yeah, you could. But there's another factor that you must consider. So this is something that makes that the Christian life. Those who are really authentic Christians, they are people you can't really figure out. Really. Think if they go this way, they go the other way. Because they are walking in a dimension, in a higher spiritual plane, than most of us understand. 
And so, when it is right to eat, so why should I say, well, I'm not going to eat because of your conscience. So the apostle says, or the Holy Spirit through him says, there is something else you should consider before you protest that your freedom has been infringed upon because of somebody's uh, conscience. Anyway, so the issue of what is that order thing that you should consider before you make, you know, before you, before you start protesting. What you should consider is what we'll begin with in next study. Nonetheless, you remember that what we're considering is simply this. That you should understand that the use of your freedom is not absolute. Desicated. Understand it's not absolute. So you need to adjust it according to the application. In other words, although you may be free to do whatever you want to do, but there are mitigating circumstances that constrain you as a believer not to do that. Because when you do, even though the thing you are going to do is not sinful, but your action will become sinful. That, again, is why I emphasize that the Christian life is much more than what people say, I don't do this, I don't do that. It's a whole lot more than that. And that is what we're going to be considering in our study next week. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet who wants you to know of the love of God for you. He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come, live the heaven with all his glories, to come and assume human nature. Because he considers you valuable in his plan. He loves you so much that he wasn't willing for you to go into eternal destruction. So he sent his son to come and die and pay for your sins. If you go to hell, you're going so because you rejected Christ as one who paid for your sins. But if you believe in him, you will escape the coming judgment. So the Bible tells us that the way to escape the coming wrath of God, which will be to spend time in lake of fire forever. The way you escape that is by faith in Christ. If you believe that Christ died on the cross for you, you have eternal life. That's why the command is, is given, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His name. If you believe He is God, who took on a human form, died, rose again the third day, you will have eternal life. So trust in Him. And on the other hand, if you say, I don't want to believe in Him, my friend, you are very close to walking into hell for all eternity. So escape and trust Him and be delivered from hell and all the consequences that go with it. So we thank you, Heavenly Father, for our study of your word this morning. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will continue to challenge us to recognize that although we have freedom in Christ, that that must be tailored by other circumstances and instruction in your word with the mind 
that all that matters is to glorify your son Jesus Christ. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.